Well, we are in our final and last week in the book of Jude. Some of you, you're here for the very first time. It's like walking into a movie two hours late. That's okay. I'm really good at getting you caught up to speed. Or at least I think so, because I just made that statement. This is what you need to know. Jude is the half-brother of a guy named Jesus. Hopefully most of you know him. If not, hopefully by the end of service night you will know him. He is the half-brother of Jesus. He writes this letter sometime between 68 and 70 A.D. And like his siblings, he did not become a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection. That is, during the time, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, he didn't buy into what his brother was offering. It was only after the resurrection that he believed. Maybe he became a follower. Jude writes this letter pretty much because there is an issue in this community of believers. There are spiritual pretenders. And he is trying to unmask them because they are wrecking havoc among this group of believers that he's writing to. That pretty much gets you caught up to speed, more or less. Right to verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. We'll pause there. Let's unpack this. Let's talk about this verse. Jude describes God as the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. Or your translation might say from falling. It's an idea that has already been celebrated back in verse 1, when he says that we are kept for Jesus Christ. And he continues this way of thinking here in verse 24. He begins with it in verse 1. He ends with it here in verse 24. You've got to figure at that point it might be kind of important. And of course, there is another type of keeping that is contrasting with this positive keeping of the believers, and this other type of keeping is for those who are unbelievers, for those who are not followers of Jesus. They will be kept under gloomy darkness. Judgment has been kept for them, has been reserved for them, according to verse 6 and verse 13. And perhaps on a more interesting note, Verse 21 and verse 24 seem to collide. Verse 24, once again, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God's able to keep you from stumbling. But you say, well, for those of you who heard last week, or for those of you who are now looking back at verse 21 in your text, you say, that sounds kind of strange, because it seems like Jude said the opposite back in verse 21, because in verse 21 he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, and then he gave some very practical ways in which you could do this. Verse 21, he seems to emphasize human responsibility. You need to keep yourself in the love of God. Here are some practical ways that you can do this. But now in here in verse 24... He seems to, instead of emphasizing human responsibility, he seems to emphasize God's sovereign ability in keeping us from stumbling. And so some of us kind of scratch our head and we say, well, which is it? Is it that believers are to keep themselves in God's love and do practical things to benefit their spiritual lives in focusing on Jesus, having eternal perspective 
on praying in the Holy Spirit, in building others up? Is it that, or is it that God keeps us from stumbling? And my answer is, yes. <laughs> I'm thankful for the parts of Scripture which serve as an illustration to other parts of Scripture when they retell similar types of instances. So I'm going to bring in the subject matter expert right now, the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, this is what Paul says. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds a lot like human responsibility to me. All right, so it's verse 21. But then he continues the thought into Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Emphasis on human responsibility. And then it says, For it is God who is working in you both to will, not your will, His will. To will and to work. Not your work, His work for His good pleasure. Not your good pleasure, His good pleasure. Or said in another way in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I made it happen. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And this is what we see, this mixing of Human responsibility with God's sovereign ability. Man, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. I'm going to do it. I'm going to work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I worked harder than any of them. Oh, by the way, it was God ultimately working in me. It was by God's grace working right alongside with me. And this is very important in our understanding of verse 24. And it results in a few things. For starters, it results in our understanding of this idea of joy. Back to verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great... What's that word? Okay, thank you for the three of you who are listening. Thank you. No. Appreciate it, Jordan. Um, joy, guys, it's Joy. Joy. And this is significant that we understand this because we all experience oftentimes personal or private joys. Like, I'm so happy, right? Any Michigan State fans in here? No. <laughs> this, I, 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 I just saw the highlights. I do my best because I'm an Army chaplain, so people are always talking about college football, so I always try and be in the know. So it can be relative and hip and cool. I usually fail miserably most of the time at those things. But I saw it. It was, it was amazing. Like, it, um, it was just, it was amazing. It's, it's, it's uh, fourth down, 10 seconds on the clock. Uh, Michigan 
The Wolverines, they're going to they're gonna punt it. They're up by two. There's one play left. They just, they just punt it. They snap the ball to the kicker. He doesn't grab the ball, ends up juggling it, literally hands it right to the Michigan State player. He grabs it, runs it all the way down into the end zone. They're calling it the, the miracle at the madhouse. I mean, it was just really exciting. And in that moment, like there is, for some of you, like personal joy, personal happiness. Like some of you this week, it was a really good week, right? You found out that that guy... Or that girl, the, you know, the, <laughs> you found out that they like you too, right? That they're, they're picking up what you're laying down. <laughs> I, tried, I tried that. Di- Diana laughed. So I was like, well, maybe they'll laugh too when I say it like that. <laughs> I never know. No, it was a good week, right? You got some good news. You found out. And... and it's not a bad reaction to those situations. However, it's slightly limited when we apply it to verse 24, and he says, with great joy. This isn't so much a private joy as it is a collective joy. A collective joy. It is the appropriate reaction from saints who have been delivered by God. Maybe I'll put it in an illustration like this. Imagine if there were some bad people who were going to come in the church right now and start shooting us one by one. And for whatever reason, the FBI um, uh, caught them in the act and all of our lives were saved. Maybe the country doesn't remember. Maybe... Virginia doesn't remember. Maybe Lynchburg doesn't. I'll tell you what, for those of us in here who have been spared, our lives have now been extended for another year or two or five or 10 or 30 or 60. I mean, that's great news, right? Our lives have just been spared. Like, we were about to, our lives were about to end here and they've been spared. I mean, we would be excited. You talk about excitement in a football game? Oh, man, you've not seen nothing here. And it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 60, 70 years is a drop in the bucket. The fact that for some of you in here who know Jesus, who love Jesus, who serve Jesus, who follow Jesus, your lives have been spared for all eternity. (sighs) Yeah, that's good news! That's great news, and that is why it is great joy. Nothing's going to top that. And yet this promise that God will preserve believers from apostasy, from turning, does not cancel out the exhortation we see in verse 21 where he says to keep yourselves in the love of God, and I want you to do some of these very practical things in doing it. Verse 24, the sovereign ability of God doing this doesn't cancel out Jude's instruction in verse 21, where he says you need to keep yourselves in God's love, and you need to do some of these practical things in order to make that happen. And we have this tendency, maybe it's Americans, I don't know, but we have this tendency when it comes to Scripture... We read a part and we think, well, it can't obviously mean what I'm thinking it's saying, so I'm just going to discard that one. But we do that. Come across a hard passage of Scripture? Yeah, I don't like that. I mean, for me, five years ago, it was Romans 9. Come across Romans 9, and I'm thinking, nope, that can't obviously say what I'm thinking it's saying. And we have a tendency to do that, right? As soon as we read something, 
that we don't like it or it doesn't fit well within our own framework to just be like, yeah, we're just, I'm just going to white out that part. And the temptation is to do that here when we look at verse 21 with the emphasis on human responsibility and we see it collide in verse 24 with the emphasis of God's sovereign ability to keep you. Be careful not to do that. To make confetti out of the pages of this book. When you come across hard passages that upset you or that you quite frankly just don't like. And so he says that God is able to keep you from stumbling. The word keep in the translation, it's, it's a military word that's being used. It literally means to guard or to, to watch over. And we see this picture in verse 24 of God keeping us, watching over us, ensuring the safety of believers, not the sinlessness of believers, because we sin and we repent and we sin and we repent some more. Um, but that will, he will preserve us and ultimately that he will present us blameless. Blameless, the word means faultless, that one day we will be in a sinless state that we will enjoy. And we know that will be a time of great joy. And I'll say this, this is really, really good news for believers who struggle every day with whether they're really a Christian or not. This is really good news for some of you in here right now who just had a really hard week or month. And maybe you're fighting with a particular sin in your life, just fighting and fighting, and for every two or three steps forward, you get, you get knocked down, and, and, you some, and the devil comes and attacks you and lies to you, and you just, I don't know. Like, am I, am I a Christian today or am I not? Well, it's good news for a lot of us in here. It's amazing news because the reality is, is we, we see that this doctrine, we call it the perseverance of the saints. All throughout the New Testament, believers are referred to as saints. That if you are a believer, if you love Jesus, if you've been saved by Jesus, you will persevere to the end. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Or the doctrine of eternal security. It's a beautiful thing. And it can't be kept by human effort because Christians did nothing to earn it. You didn't do anything to make it happen in the first place. Therefore, you can't do anything to lose it. In light of this, I was reading John MacArthur's commentary on this passage, and Jude, he cites a, a great quote from another author, and I wanted to read to you. Is it, and I quote, is it conceivable that in spite of all this, Christians may still fall away and be lost? Is it possible for God to predestine us to holiness and yet we don't become holy? Can he adopt us as children and then disown us? Can he give us a guarantee of salvation and then renege on his promise? Is the human will so strong as to overcome divine power? Surely not! What more does God need to say to assure us that he will uphold us to the end? Or do you not know, saints, 
Do you not know, believers, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? You don't know that? Get to know Philippians 1.6 for those of you who struggle with this concept. Get to know Philippians 1.6. Hold on to the promise of Philippians 1.6. And yet, and I will be clear here, the doctrine of eternal security, of the perseverance of the saints, does not mean that people can live in patterns of unrepentant sin and still be assured of their place with Jesus. The doctrine of eternal security is not a license for sin. And I'm, I'm going to come back to that, okay? Um, I need to spend some time on that, but I want to go to verse 25 first. Verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The word amen, literally, it means let it be so or truth. Amen? Amen. Right. So verse 25, Jude is going to confess that there is only God. He is confessing the only God. And you may remember, backstory, back to verse 4, that the spiritual pretenders who are wrecking havoc in the midst of this community are denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And what stands at the contrast of verse 4? Verse 25, as Jude confesses, the only God. <clears throat> to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory. Glory is also something that human beings can give to God. And other beings, the scriptures testify to this. Glory has a couple different meanings. It can mean reputation or honor. And in the ancient Mediterranean societies, honor was something to be very highly praised. One could act honorably, as one commentator notes, and in that sense have great honor. But others might not be aware or might not recognize it. In the sense of reputation, honor is given by others to the honorable person, in this case, the deity. Ideally, on the basis of genuine qualities seen in people or genuine deeds done by them, thus human beings and others are often said to give glory to God. And I've got tons of verses here where we see giving glory to God, ascribing glory to God, glory and majesty and dominion and authority. And I pause. Authority. We're at authority now in verse 25, if you're still with me. Authority indicates the right of someone to be able to exercise power or dominion or strength. Your text might have different words there. I've got dominion. I know others say power or strength. Um, authority is the ability to exercise that right because power and dominion and strength without authority, they're kind of useless. Like a police officer might have power, might have dominion in his training or in his nine millimeter that he's carrying, 
whenever he's being issued, but that power, that dominion, that strength without authority, it's greatly diminished. Should he find himself on the wrong side of the Canadian or Mexican-American border? You got training? Awesome. You got a nine, nine mil? Doesn't matter. You don't have the authority to exercise that dominion, that power, that strength. It's really diminished and limited and insignificant. So Jude makes it clear for his audience that, oh, by the way, he has dominion, and he has the authority to exercise his dominion over his creation. And it wasn't something that just happened. That just decided to be today. Because it has been before all time and now and forever. This has been the standard par none. The divine supremacy over everything in the universe is and has been and will be for all time. Or as Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's never been a time in which this has not been true because there's never been a time in which He hasn't been. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be afraid. And some of you, you struggle with that all the time. Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? Oh, this is good news. It's good news, like when you see Revelation 1a and he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. You don't have to be afraid. I got you. If this doesn't excite you, like, I don't know what will. That in seeing the greatness of God, you might be enthralled by his glory, overcome by his majesty, and wowed by his power and authority. That is good news. Like That's why it's called a doxology, because it's praising God for some awesome things happening. We don't praise things because they're okay or just boring or so-so. I love the New York Rangers, who after week one had a terrible week two. I don't get excited about picking up one point and a possibility of six points. They, they, they lost two games in regulation. They lost one in overtime. Like, I don't get excited about that. That's nothing to get excited about. That's just okay. It's less than okay. This, this is fantastic. And if this doesn't excite you, I don't know what will, quite frankly. Charles Spurgeon, the great evangelist of the 19th century England, Pastor in England, when he heard this, he got a little excited. I'll read you a quote. When I heard it said that the Lord would keep his people right to the end, the Christ had said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. I must confess that the doctrine of the final preservation of the saints was a bait that my soul could not resist. I thought it was a sort of life insurance, an insurance of my character, 
an insurance of my soul, an insurance of my eternal destiny. I knew that I could not keep myself, but if Christ promised to keep me, then I should be safe forever. And I longed and prayed to find Christ because I knew that if I found him, he would not give me a temporary salvation such as some preach, but eternal life, which could never be lost. The living and incorruptible seed, which liveth and abideth forever. For no one and nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, this is great news. This is great news for a lot of you in here who just needed a little pick-me-up this week or this month. As you maybe haven't been as successful over battling a particular sin in your life as you would like. And Satan comes, and he does, and he attacks you and says, you're not a Christian. You're a joke. (laughs) You call yourself a believer? (laughs) You're not. You're disgusting. Oh, saints. Jude's word is a word for all of us today. And I said something earlier, and I'm going to come back and clarify it because it deserves a clarification in an easy believism society in which we live today. And that is that the doctrine of eternal security, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, does not mean that people can live in patterns of unrepentant sin and still be assured of their place with Jesus. And many people think they can. There was a guy I knew back during my seven-year stretch at Liberty. We'll call him Nate. He doesn't live in Virginia. He's not in here. I remember Nate, remember this conversation. Conversations like these tend to prick you a little harder than other conversations. And Nate came to me and he said, Joe, here's the thing. I love Jesus. He's my Savior. I believe that. Well, I believe all the things you're supposed to believe. And he did. But I don't want to bust my tail trying to be an A-plus Christian to get into heaven when I can be a D-minus Christian and still pass the course, so to speak. And so, in Nate's mind, this was justification and rationalization because someone told him that if you're a Christian, you can't lose your salvation, which I would affirm, the church would affirm that. But there's one serious problem for guys like Nate. Because someone who is a true believer, they probably wouldn't think like that because if they are a true believer, they've been given a new nature, according to 2 Peter 1.4. And that new nature loves to obey Jesus, John 14.15. Doesn't mean you always do, but that's your deepest desire, to love and serve and worship Jesus. Those who make a profession of faith, those who make a decision, pray a prayer, and then fall away into a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, reveals that more often than not, that profession, it wasn't genuine in the first place. It wasn't legit in the first place, according to 1 John 2.19. 
Some of you, because you've heard this watered-down version of the doctrine of perseverance of the saints or eternal security, that you can't lose your salvation, you feel so comfortable in your sin. And it has never really bothered you that no change has happened. You, you never, perhaps until now, have really contemplated whether or not such a doctrine would apply to you. You've just assumed that it has because you've assumed that you're a Christian. And now perhaps for the very first time, you're here today and then you're not sure anymore because I'm saying things that are making you feel kind of uncomfortable. And I'm causing you, perhaps, to rethink some super shallow versions of Christianity that you were taught. Well, I'm okay with that. I'm okay if you feel uncomfortable as you rethink whether this doctrine actually applies to you or not. Because for some of you, it's really just an excuse to say and live the way my friend Nate did. To claim to be a Christian, to claim to believe right things. But there's no new nature. There's no new desire to love Jesus, to obey Jesus, to serve Jesus. There's no fruit. There's no evidence in your life whatsoever. Like if I asked you, what is your deepest desire? You wouldn't say to follow Jesus and follow hard after him even though you've been walking through life with the illusion that you're a Christian, when in reality you love and worship things more than you do the Creator God who is forever blessed. And that's a problem. And many American evangelical Protestant churches, right? It is a huge problem because people... They're like, I got, my, I got my fire insurance, got my golden ticket. I can, I can just live however I want, right? And they presume upon God's grace. I'm just going to live however I want to live, and it's okay because I believe all the right things and God's going to forgive me. Newsflash! Odds are, if that's you, you might not be a Christian. And I would rather say hard things and make you feel uncomfortable right now than for you to walk out the door with the illusion that you're a Christian and that the doctrine of eternal security applies to you than one day you stand in front of the Creator of the universe and He says, away from me, I never knew you. So many people. It's how they think. Here's the reality. The reality is, you cannot meet Jude's brother Jesus and nothing in your life not change. That's impossible, according to the Bible. See, if you meet Jude's brother Jesus, which I hope all of you do, because Jude's brother Jesus is pretty awesome. I hope that you, you meet him. I hope that you place your faith in him. I hope you stop doing things that the Bible says are wrong and repent. But if you've been a Christian and nothing's in your life has changed, there's, there's nothing different in your life. And that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people today. No change. They say, I'm a Christian. Well, you've been a Christian for how long? Five years? Ten years? I don't know. Is there any change? Is there anything different in your life? Not really. 
But see, the part of that goes back to how we pronounce people in this Vatican papal way is saved because they've prayed a prayer and made a decision, whatever you want to call it. John the Baptist doesn't say that when the Pharisees come for baptism. He doesn't say, you brood of vipers, you haven't prayed the prayer. You brood of vipers, you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus. You brood of vipers. He says, you brood of vipers bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They have evidence, right? They have fruit. That's why the imagery is used, because you see a tree, it doesn't have leaves, it doesn't have fruit. It's like, it's a dead tree, it's not a real tree, regardless of what that tree says. And that is the case here. See, when Jesus saves you, when you truly meet Jesus, he changes you. Oh, it's a process. That's what sanctification is. The Father making you more like the Son, right? It's before I was a Christian, when I would look at the cross, I just, I, I'd see facts, I'd see the answers. And now, oh man, when I look at the cross, it's, 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 it's breathtaking. How does that happen, Jesus? Right? Before I was a Christian, I used to do things and hang out with people and go to certain places I had no business going to. I used to watch things I shouldn't watch, listen to things I shouldn't listen to. And we become a Christian, and like one person told me a couple months ago, they said, yeah, I started coming to Lynchburg City Church, and I was doing some things I probably shouldn't have been doing, and I, I started, you know, coming and reading my Bible, and I just, I don't know why I wanted to read my Bible. I wanted to read my Bible. Like, I don't know how that happened. I wanted to go to church, right? And then I, I started hearing the, the Word of God preached, and I realized, man, I, I need to stop doing some of those things, because some of those things, that displeases God. That's not okay. That's not right. Like, like, where does that come from? That comes from Jesus. You can't meet Jude's brother Jesus, and nothing change in your life, because Jude's brother Jesus, he changes everything. Everything has changed. And therefore, if you're sitting here today and you're like, you know, I've been a Christian for this long, but there's nothing in my life that's ever changed. I don't feel like I have a new nature. I don't feel like I have new desires. No, I don't feel like there's ever been a change. I just know the right things. It's entirely possible that you don't actually know Jesus in a saving way. I'm not talking about whether you need to rededicate your life. I'm talking about whether you need to get saved, maybe for the very first time, and place your faith in our great God and King, and turn and repent of your sins. That's what I'm talking about. I want the band to come, and I would like to pray. Holy Father, we love you. We worship you. We praise you because you are God. We praise you that you are the Alpha, you are the Omega, you are the beginning, you are the end. You have been, you always were, you always will be. And for those of us who know you, who are followers of you, oh Lord, we just rejoice and we praise you. And we're going to sing and worship you in just a second and it's going to be awesome. But there's people in here that don't know you that way. There's people in here, they're not followers of you, Jesus. There's even people in here, I wouldn't be surprised that they think they're Christians. They think they can't lose their salvation. And right now, in this moment, they're rethinking whether they're even really a Christian or not. And I would pray for them right now that you would grant them a heart of repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth as... Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.25, we need your help. Holy Spirit, encourage those right now who need to be encouraged that they are secure in you. And show other people who are not secure in you the reality of their current sinful state. 
We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in our great God and King, Jesus' name. Amen.